Welcome to Coffee with Curtis, your home for quality business conversation. Hey everybody, I'm Robert Curtis. Welcome to the show. On this episode, we welcome Eleanor Honigstein as our guest. Eleanor is exceptional. She is the head of UK office and strategic partnerships at the UK Israel Tech Hub, which is an amazing initiative run by the British Foreign Office, which fosters increased trade, particularly around technology between Israel and the United Kingdom. We chat all about that. We talk about the Israeli tech boom, and we also discuss big issues like women in business, women in tech, fundraising, investing, and lots of other big themes. So I was really pleased to have Eleanor on the podcast. It was a great episode and look forward to hearing your feedback. Hope you enjoy it too. Eleanor, I'm so happy that you've joined us on Coffee with Curtis. I've been excited to get this onto my calendar and to bring you onto the podcast and chat about all things that excite you and drive your work and your life. So welcome to Coffee with Curtis. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Really happy to be here. Amazing. I actually feel like we had a bout of Eleanor every day this week on social media. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, view, I'm viewing it that they were the warm-up acts for this show. Uh, to be honest, it's probably just how your algorithm works on your LinkedIn. But uh, let's just, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, we're, we're going to talk about some big themes today. But before we do that, um, I'd love to just begin with a quick 360 on you. Um, describe your background and yourself to our listeners. Sure. Um, so I... I was born in Israel, as you can probably detect from my accent. I moved uh, to the UK 19 years ago. I did my master's here at LSE in uh, organizational and social psychology. Uh, and I guess I, I always worked in um, organizations where I really truly cared about their mission, whether it's um, educational, community building. I worked a lot with the Jewish community. I ran the uh, Tel Aviv University Trust here to raise money for the for the university. And I was one of the founding uh, team members of JW3, which is um, kind of one of the largest community centers for um for Jewish people uh, in in uh, in Europe, I think. So really, really passionate about that. And then I decided to scale and do things um, on a larger larger scale, basically do good things on a larger scale. So I moved uh, to the technology industry because I figured, you know, there I can really grow. And I started working for Zinc VC, which is an incubator that builds um, kind of social impact ventures. And it opened my eyes on, on kind of the powerful uh, tool that technology is to achieve um, really the benefit of, of, uh, of the kind of the, for the global, uh, for the for the globe, for the for society, and um, and really it opened my appetite to learn even more. And so I uh, I wanted to join the UK Israel Tech Hub. That's where I am now. Uh, that gives me a great overview on uh, on anything to do for from you know social impact to government, how government works, um, and uh, and how obviously the tech ecosystem works. And I'm happy to kind of elaborate on that a bit later. 
Amazing. You've done um, what I think a lot of people are thinking about now because we've got this big, you know, the big quit or the great resignation. But, you know, you have transitioned from you know, non-profit world um, to the tech world. How did you find that transition? Is Because typically, and perhaps maybe that's changed in more recent times, but it wasn't such an easy jump. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. And you know what? When I said to people I want to do to move to tech, some of them looked at me as if I'm crazy. I mean, I've been doing social impact nonprofit work for a decade then. And um, there's like, there's no way you're going to get in. Uh, and I, I mean, one of the things that I really learned along the journey is to build my network and to be very assertive. And it was hard. There was lots of kind of moments where I doubted myself. But I think there were quite a few people that uh, really got me. They really understood that, you know, all the all the uh, experience and the skills that I've gained in the nonprofit world were actually super valuable for the commercial uh, and the tech uh, industry. So, for example, business development, um, getting uh, funding and sponsorship. We were a very, very lean team at JW3. So this has really taught me to work um, very hard and create a lot with very little. So, you know, thanks to really good people along the way, I got some opportunities opportunities and, uh, and kind of taught myself about the ecosystem and, uh, yeah, got to where I am now. I think, uh, if, you know, what I've noticed, you know, just in my own career um, and particularly recently, I've really upped the networking game. Um, and that often is where it always comes back to. The people that you surround yourself with are often the, the bridge to what you're trying to achieve. It sounds like that was very similar for you. Absolutely. And I think one of the mistakes that I've done actually working, um, you know, at that time in the nonprofit, I was so busy with um, actually uh, survival mode almost, you know, on, on your, behalf of your organization that I f forgot about myself. I forgot about promoting myself. And so I realized when I left that organization that no one outside of my immediate network had a clue about all the things that I've done, you know, the money I raised and the community I built. And I, I almost had to kind of build my, my reputation from, from the ground up. And that's a mistake that I don't want to repeat and uh, that I'm also trying to help other people, um, you know, not, not to do again. And that's why I also became, I guess, an I'm Remarkable facilitator, which really helps women and underrepresented groups to, uh, learn how to promote themselves and build their network because it's a really, it's a tool that helps you build a network. It's, I, I think probably the times have changed as well around that back, you know, 15, 20 years ago when, you know, we were entering the workplace, it was all about the company brand. You were a cog in a wheel and, uh, you know, you, you didn't matter. You could be replaced, you could be moved on, but actually with the emergence of, Places like LinkedIn, which obviously have changed dramatically um, in, in recent years, that personal brand is so important these days. And um, you can shout about your achievements. I mean, I was actually speaking to a nonprofit last week, and they've never really told their story, either as a, as a nonprofit or individually, the amazing stories that different people in that organization have that they should be sharing with people. And I said to them, it's not just because you want to do good. It's good for you. 
this is your personal brand that selfishly you should be pushing. Exactly, exactly what you just said. And I actually held um, the other day uh, an I'm Remarkable workshop for a for a bunch of non-profits. Just, just for our listeners, explain what the I Am Remarkable sure. uh, mission is. Sure. So the mission is, it's, first of all, it's a Google initiative. Um, and the mission is really to, to help, um, as I said, women and underrepresented groups to learn the skills and to have the mindset of promoting their achievements confidently and openly, whether it's, um, you know, on social media, but also in their own workplace, in their own networks, to know about, to kind of speak about your successes. Uh, and it's not something that comes natural to a lot of people, uh, but it is a skill that, as I said, you can learn. Um, and what I find from, you know, with nonprofits specifically, is that because they are tied in so, so much into the organization mission, as you said, they forget, forgot to promote themselves. They forgot to kind of almost detach themselves from that and say, I've done this. I, but, but, but the world around us does require us to, to be, you know, um, kind of stand on our own two feet and talk about ourselves. And that's kind of the, the kind of the problem sometimes with people who work in nonprofit where they're so passionate about what they do and they forget to talk about themselves. But as you said, nowadays, the trend is kind of moving into also organizations understanding that the, the individual employee brand is, is important to the organizational brand and they're actually encouraging their employees to, um, to promote themselves. And I see it with the number of um, workshops that I'm being book to do uh it's insane from private sector to social sector i think i think what's remarkable about the 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 change in in in, in industry and in work is that you know maybe our parents generation they would stay in jobs for a very long time um and that is a very rare occurrence these days particularly in the tech world people move around every two three maybe four years and I think it was Reed Hoffman um, who who um, described this as people today do tours of duty, almost you know a military reference. They're doing tours of duty in different companies, and they're acquiring different skill sets throughout that that journey. Um, and it's much more about the skills that they are honing and taking with them on their own personal mission through their career. Um, and I, th I think that's something that the, the marketplace is now starting to understand as well. Absolutely. And also within a workplace, you know, you cannot expect that um, people would know about, you know, what you do if you don't tell them uh, because your workplaces are so dispersed and now we're working a lot virtually and you don't have those coffee conversations where you can say, by the way, I'm, I'm working on this. And so you really need to create those opportunities for that, for self-promotion. And that's super important to kind of put yourself uh, forward in front of s different people inside and outside your immediate network. How have you found working from home? Uh, the only reason I'm bringing this up is I was talking this week with some friends on it. And for me, it was okay. I prefer going to an office. Um, I'm perhaps more traditional in that respect. But um, I noticed this week that actually we've we volunteer to have work experience people come in. So this week we've got somebody who's nearly 18, never been in the workplace before, and he's doing two or three weeks work experience with us. If he had to do that at home, it would completely fail. There's no way 
that he would ever get the skills, the nuance, the moments, the just the little, like you say, those coffee moments, and just the ability to just quickly ask questions. I, I'm not sure. I, I think for established teams, yeah, I'm sure it works. How was work from home for you? Um, and what are your views on it? So for me, I mean, I was working from home also before the pandemic because uh, all my uh -huh. team is based. You're a veteran. <laughs> yeah, all my team is based in the British uh, Embassy in Tel Aviv, and so um, I guess for me, actually having them all online with me, virtually with me, was a benefit. You know, I was actually enjoying that we're all equals in in, in that sense. <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, because you know, I wasn't actually able to go to meetings and. Uh, this is where I found it difficult, you know, to build that trust with people where you need to kind of sell them some, a service, where you need to, um, you know, build a new partnership. This is something that I find challenging to do on Zoom when your time is so, you know, it's all very strict and you are one of many, many, many other Zooms that the people in front of you are having. So I guess on building trust, that's, that's a, a difficulty. But actually on productivity, I must say that my productivity has really expanded uh, massively because I'm able to do much, much more, many more projects uh, and initiatives. And uh, it's, it's, it's great. You just need to have the balance. Yeah, no, well, it sounds like it's worked for you, which is great. And let's segue into your role as the head of strategic partnerships for the UK Israel Tech Hub, um, which is an initiative of the UK Foreign Office, as I understand it. Yeah. Um, just give us a, a sense of what that, that office um, is designated to do um, and how you specifically manage your role. As I, as I again, I understand that you're really managing the ecosystem of the Israeli innovation to match with venture capital, big corporates in the UK. Um, what does that look like? How's, how's your, your, your week to week? Exactly. So, I mean, what's interesting about the hub is actually the background to how we were established. So we were established 10 years ago by the UK government because they recognized Israel as an innovation powerhouse and they wanted to um, kind of enable the, the UK market to tap into the best innovation that's, that's coming from there. So there was an agreement between um, David Cameron at the time and Bibi Netanyahu to start the, the hub uh, and... Um, we were basically established as, as almost like a mechanism to help those corporates, VCs in the UK to grow via um, innovation that's coming from Israel that really matches their needs. And so we are always on our day-to-day, -day, we are looking for those synergies. Where does um, Israel has strong innovation, where the, the UK um, has um, really need an, a big enough market um, to, to kind of create those synergies. And at the moment, our focus sectors is our own healthcare, fintech and cyber and clean tech. And under clean tech comes anything to do with food tech, agri-tech, energy, um, and for each of those sectors, we have sector managers that sit at the British Embassy in Tel Aviv, and they're very much, they're embedded into the tech ecosystem there, um, and they help me to then bring all their knowledge and all the startups uh, when we are talking to the, the British corporates. Um, and I guess my day-to-day -day is... Um, is extremely interesting because it's very, very different. There's no day that is, you know, uh, like another. 
And I also have quite a lot of um, freedom of creation. So, for example, um, when we, at the beginning of the pandemic, when we saw that there is a need um, to help uh, women because uh, they were lagging behind before that in, in tech, so we were really trying to kind of promote them, we established, I established together with my team at the British Embassy, the UK-Israel Women Leading Innovation Network, which is an example of how we were able as a team to take an idea and really utilize our position, our unique position in the government and bring it to life. Um, so that's kind of uh, where I am now in conversations with VCs, with corporates, kind of and kind of showcasing uh, Israeli innovation and how it can match and address their, uh, their innovation needs. Such an interesting role, I guess, for you also as a, you know, a born Israeli and but obviously you've lived, li lived in the UK for a long time. You're almost at like sort of the, the intersection of being an ambassador for both sides and bringing, bringing everybody together. Such a cool role. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny that you say that because I feel like I have that dual personality almost that, um, I'm, a, I'm an Israeli for the Brits and I'm almost like a, a British for the Israelis because, you know, after 20 years here in the, in the UK, you, you adapt a little bit. Um, but yeah, it is a value because I managed to, uh, turn on and turn <laughs> off, uh, those two, two bits of my personality whenever I need to. <laughs> I, I say to friends that uh, don't live in Israel, you know, when I'm here, my elbows are out. And when I'm, when I'm in the UK, I can just, you know, drop my elbows and uh, it's, it's a different scenario. Exactly. It reminds me of my, my, one of my daughters when she wanted to move schools. She told me, Mommy, I need you to turn on your Israeli and get me into that new school. So it's exactly that. So... Two questions for you. Um, the first one is actually about perceptions. So we've talked about your role as essentially you're an ambassador for, for, for both these countries to bring together the tech to, to business. How, how do you find companies and VCs perceiving Israel? Obviously, Israel comes with its baggage and its story. And I'm sure that's something that, you know, um, you probably don't come across so often because you're talking business and people want to get down to what, what they can achieve. But how, what's the perception of Israel in, in the business world in the UK? So we, we are very lucky because I guess the, uh, because we would we're doing tech, we work in tech essentially. So the reputation of Israel is very, very strong in that, in that industry. Um, as you know, Israel just uh, had a record year in raising funds of 25 billion, uh, dollars. And this really speaks for itself and all the innovation that comes from there. So in a sense, my, my work is quite easy in, in that respect. And I don't need to kind of, um, sell a whole product anew. If, if you see what I mean. Um, but when it comes to the perception of working with Israeli culture, I guess, you know, it's perceived as uh, a, a little bit too maybe direct, very fast paced. Um, so we do need, and I guess that's what we do really well at the Hub, is we are kind of um, the cultural translation, translator, or kind of the, the bridge builder between the startup ecosystem in Israel and the corporate uh, ecosystem in the UK. I mean, startup and corporates are anyway two different entities in how they, uh, you know, behave. And, and then you've got Israel and the UK on top. So I guess, you know, when I, when I speak to startups, I always encourage them to kind of plan ahead, uh, by considering, you know, the time that it might take 
for them to get a response for, from the, the British side, um, having a very, very clear value proposition, uh, prepare very well for meetings. Uh, we, we work with them on how they present. Um, and, and at the same time, we ask the British side to, to really select um, decision makers for, for those startup meetings who can ask the right question and also speed up the processes a little bit. Um, and we also find uh, kind of key corporate contact to, to work um, to make uh, kind of smooth uh, interaction for the startup as possible. So we have kind of an ambassador for, for the corporate um, so no one gets frustrated. So that's kind of what we do on a, on a daily basis i guess amazing so interesting it's actually similar to some of the work i've been doing in the uae following the abraham accords that you know again you know is israel is a very direct society particularly in business but but just generally you know i've been shopping this morning for for the weekend and uh you know it's direct people want to get on with things um and and in the uae it's a it's a very classy civilized society um very well educated people um, but they also want to go at a pace that is different. Um, and they want to know, you know, famously, I think it was the Crown Prince who said, you know, typically Emiratis want to know more about your mother and father before they get down to talking about your business. Um, they want to feel that they know you. Um, and I think that that's, that's actually something that does happen in Israeli society, but less so in business, I think. Um, so I think you're spot on. Last question whilst we talk about um, um, your, your work at the Hub. How has Brexit impacted the thinking of um, the UK government in terms of how it's outreaching to other countries around the world. Obviously, it's a completely new era now um, for the UK, um, and it has to open its arms even more so with existing and new relationships. Are you seeing a change in um, the work that you're doing when it comes to UK-Israel relations? Um, so I think what we what we recognize, um, and of course I'm talking for you know on behalf of my myself, not not the government, but I do recognize that the the UK and Israel are now almost kind of a standalone from Europe. You know, each country raises more tech investments and producing more unicorns and IPOs than the rest of Europe combined. Um, I think the UK um, was $40 billion, if I'm not mistaken, in 2021. And, and Israel, as I said before, $25 billion. And combined, it's more than, than, than Europe. Uh, so very, very strong entities. And, and I guess... All the three of us, you know, Europe, UK, and Israel together, um, I guess we can really form kind of strong uh, unity. Uh, and, and one of the things that I have seen in my, uh, in my work is that uh, not, not so uh, far after Brexit, I guess, 2019, the, you know, I was contacted by Tech Italia at that time, uh, which is uh, basically a... Um, a UK-based innovation hub that's trying to promote uh, Italy to the UK, Ital Italian startups to the UK, um, to, to start collaborating. And we basically formed an alliance of similar uh, innovation hubs that are based in the UK, but their uh, ecosystems are um, in Europe and Israel. So myself, I'm, re I'm representing Israel. Then I have Tech Italia, Austria, um, Switzerland, and we called it the Global Tech Connect. And I guess the reason why we came together is 
it was fueled by Brexit uh, because of that, you know, detachment. We wanted to keep the connection going. We wanted to help our ecosystems, uh, our startups from our ecosystem come into the UK and establish their businesses here. But uh, I guess we also wanted to connect our ecosystem to one another. Uh, and we held a very, very successful um, boot camp on clean tech um, last June where we collaborate and, and brought together our knowledge, our expertise, our network, and we um, helped uh, a few startups from each of our um, countries uh, to kind of expand to the UK. So that's just an example of something that happened as a result. So interesting. And uh, um, we'll, we'll segue into another topic. And I won't ask you if you've been to any government uh, garden parties recently. But, um, <laughs> oh, um, definitely not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cheese and wine, not here. So, um, so let's talk about another passion of yours, because you are a uh, Women in Tech 100 winner. Uh, for 2021. Um, as you mentioned already, you do a lot of mentoring and facilitation to help women and minority groups to realize their potential in their own personal journeys. Um, let's talk about, and I've sort of termed this, what women want when it comes to work. Um, I don't want to um, cite Mel Gibson too much from his movie because he's a controversial character when it comes to anti-Semitism or anti-Israel. But uh, um, let's, let's dive a little bit further into this topic because I'm somebody who I think would be fairly typical of most people today, um, that 100% supportive of women having equality of opportunity to enable them to do whatever it is that they want to do in their lives without any barriers in front of them. Um, but I think there's a gap in understanding, and I'm talking for myself, um, and maybe other people will resonate with what I'm saying, in what does that mean in the real world? What does that mean in terms of um, enabling women in the workplace? Um, does that mean positive discrimination? Does that mean, um, does it mean that we should have um, stipulation over quotas and boards and uh, other things like that? To start to take us on a journey, I've got other questions around this, but let's, let's start to open it up. Absolutely. I mean, this is a question that I, I think about it every day because every day there's a new report, right? It's so documented how hard it is for women. Uh, I specifically talk about in the tech industry, you know, how hard it is for women founders to access capital um, than men. I think um, in 2019, there was um, a kind of a, a report by the British Business Bank that said that for every one pound of venture capital investment in the UK, female founders got just one P and the rest went to either mixed um, kind of founder team or, uh, or only male. So we all aware of that. And I always think, you know, if, if I kind of take a step back, on the one hand, you've got those who talk about social systems, right? Institutions, recruitment practices, what you just mentioned, you know, um, the, the discrimination, raising awareness, education, unconscious bias, and all of that. Things that we do kind of as a collective that play a part mm -hmm. in women roles in the workplace, you know, and uh, make sure that they don't have lower salaries, make sure that we put CEO in, in uh, uh, women in posts. 
And I, I, the other day I read actually um, a book called Invisible Women by Caroline uh, Criado Peretz, I think her name is, which really shows us um, the world largely built for and by men, basically. Things that you would not think about, the way that uh, the transportation system works, the way that the roads are built, um, the way that uh, medicine is being uh, produced. It's, you know, the research that goes around that. Government policy, it's all... Um, kind of with the gender, with the genderless of, of men. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have those who really shine kind of the spotlight on the women themselves, you know, their personality traits and behaviors. So women that are often claimed to be without much confidence, not taking enough risks, not demanding that salary. So um, I guess in recent times, and you probably also heard it, you know, on social media, there is that thing of uh, asking women not to talk too apologetically, you know, that we are always uh, saying, if that makes sense, no worries, if not, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. to avo avoid that. But is, but is that actually a reality? Do women stereotypically more than or more often than men assert themselves less? Is that a, a, a nature-based... Um, um, attribute that needs to be worked on. I mean, I'm a fairly agreeable person. I don't consider myself like crazy assertive, but um, is, is, is that more nature rather than situation? So I think it is really on us to, um, to see how this system versus individual traits play or, or interplay. So, for example, if we're talking about lack of, of mentorship and, and relatable role models, generally speaking, in the tech industry, um, this is a system issue, right? But it can ha have that ripple effect on women's confidence. You know, wh when you are the only woman in the room, you may have more self-doubt on whether you can actually have the skills to grow a business. When you are only uh, pitching to uh, men investors who ask you specific questions, you might develop that imposter syndrome and sell yourself short as a result. So it's it's not one or the other. It's, it's really a continuum, I, I see it. You know, each end influences the other, and each of us might need to kind of gravitate towards, uh, you know, the end that we see that's right for us, depending on our experience and, and the context, and also depending on where we, we think we can make more uh, impact. And, you know, when I do the I'm Remarkable workshops to help women with self-promotion, it's not because I think women have less confidence, it's because, or, or they should have more confidence. I think it's because I see self-promotion as a tool if you see what I mean. I see it as a tool to give them. So I'm not coming from a place that I want to change women and make them more uh, like, like men. I want to give them more tools so they can become more successful. Question, question for you around um, that, that statistic that you gave, that only one penny in a pound is, is given to um, female founders via VCs or investors. That sounds like a drastic, disproportionate situation. And I can't believe, because I don't believe that we live in anymore. We definitely for sure did at different times in history. But we don't live in the West in some crazy patriarchy that's women are tyrannized to a crazy extent day on day. I, I don't believe that we live in that world. I, and I really hope we don't. I mean, maybe I just don't see it, but I'm not a woman. But the, 
there's got to be something else behind the fact that 99% are going to mixed or male-led businesses that is different that is not related to the fact that the founder is a woman unless you can show me other statistics maybe I don't know um, specifically uh, I mean look the, the this uh, statistics is even worse because it equates to five billion of investment going to all male founders uh, and and it's a shame because there was another report by Alison Rose the CEO of NatWest who showed that female founded businesses could be worth two 250 billion pounds uh, to the UK economy if women started to, to, to scale new businesses at the same rate as, as UK men. So I, I do think that there is a gap. But what's the gap there? Because you've just, you've just quoted Alison, who's, this, who's, I'm presuming, a woman, yeah. CEO of NatWest. Yes. She obviously hasn't been held back in her career. Why, why on that side around tech is there this particular disproportionate figure it's it's shocking it is very shocking and i think on that we need to go back uh into uh, education into stereotypes uh into the subject that women uh choose uh, that young girls choose to take on uh, in school uh, and in university and their and then pursue a career. It's not something that happens only when you, you know, you think about a startup. It's, it happens much, much earlier. And then it goes to, uh, as I said before, system versus individual traits. You know, if, if you are born uh, into a family that encourages, let's say, or, or society that encourages uh, men to go and study math and computing and, and the girls to study, I don't know, something else, then this gap expands and expands and you need to start from really from the beginning almost and that's why I'm, I'm very keen also to help um, young young girls get into technology and I actually supported uh, an organization that's called SheCode in Israel um, mm. that helps uh, young girls from a very early age at least to try you know it's not to say that this is the only way to succeed but at least to try and have that um, that opportunity, it's really about opportunities. I, th I think you're right. It's about equality of opportunities. I mean, I sat in a meeting on Sunday, actually, um, for one of our clients, and there were 16 people around the table. Um, it's a female CEO, although I hate using that term because I think she's just a CEO. Um, and um, there were only three guys out of the 16 people around the table. So 13 women and three men. So obviously change is coming and is here already. Um, but I, won I wonder whether some of the, the difficulties relate to perhaps the, the nature of, of a woman's life compared to a man's life, typically. Only women, for example, can have children. And the, and they have to, women typically have to cram in more of their life early um, than a man has to. A man has, you know, years ahead of him, he can go and do what he wants, whereas a woman has to like fit in her education, fit in her career, fit in having that baby if she chooses to have children. And that has to happen at a certain point because at a certain point she won't be able to have children. I'm, I'm wondering whether that just natural dynamics play a role in what we're seeing today because again i don't believe we live in this tyrannical society in the west where um you know women are being uh you know victimized in in the way that maybe some some perhaps on the far far left would have you believe 
Well, we are not being victimized, that's for sure, but we are, uh, there's a lot of unseen bias, things that we even don't know or things that we take for granted. You know, when you talk about um, having children at a certain age, yes, that's, that's for sure. It's happening and sometimes, you know, it, uh, women choose to uh, put their career on hold to be with their children. However, it is down to also the, the, the company to encourage women to, uh, to come back to work, to, um, to give uh, also paternity leave for, for the dads to help. Um, it's, and now we see a lot, I don't know if you had a chance to see it on social media, a lot of women that are being hired being pregnant. And this is something that we didn't see before. You know, if you have if you're pregnant and you are visually pregnant, no one would hire you a few years ago. They would not tell you that it's because of that, but you didn't even probably wouldn't go to the interview. And now there's a whole trend that's opening up those doors for women. So it's things that we are so used to seeing. And, uh, and now that we kind of turn, turn them on their heads and say, actually, it can be done differently. That's so interesting. I did, that's a really interesting insight. Um, I actually spoke about this with my son before we came on the podcast because I mentioned that I was meeting with you for this and um, was talking about some of the issues. And it, it's true. It's a, it is a decision that if you're a CEO, male or female, and you're running a fast-paced, growing business, and somebody comes in who um, is either visibly pregnant or you sense that might happen – that must pay an unconscious bias in your decision. And, but it's not that it's anti-woman in the same way that I think you might be suggesting. I think it's a reality of their business. So I, I think it's if you, if you need somebody to do a job and it's then and you can't have them off for a year because you need that role, it's, it, it, that's where I think it becomes mixed and misunderstood as to making a decision around who you should hire. And, and you know, I come from a, a social psychology background, so I always look at the, um, the way people think. And, you know, if uh, when it comes to fundraising, uh, you know, when you have uh, investors wanting to invest in a company, at the end of the day, it's really about trust, right? It's about trust between two people. And you're more likely to trust people from your own network. Uh, and so if women are not in that network, then you will not get, and they will not get those warm introductions, right? And so the, it will be much, much harder for them to even start a conversation and get the funding. So it is about having those, as we said before, opportunities and having those, that network access. And that's something I'm really, really trying to help, uh, you know, promote as part of the UK-Israel Women Leading Innovation Network that we're running, and, and really and to the women that I mentor, and open those doors for them that they will have the same level of opportunities. It's amazing work that you're doing. I wonder, I wonder what your take is on, um, I guess, motherhood. Um, I know you're a mother, mother. Um, and, um, do you sense, again, this might be a loaded question, but do you sense that potentially motherhood is being victimized in the reverse? It's a, it's very, very subjective, right? It's a very, very subjective decision. And I always say, you know, do, do what feels right to you. As, as a mother and myself uh, as a mother, I mean, I, 
kind of took the decision to work and kind of balance my uh, work life uh, in a way that that was right for me, which meant working part-time when, when the girls were young. Uh, but it's not a decision that is, is right for everyone. And I saw that when I came out of that, I, ha I paid a little bit of a price because I was a little bit behind those women or, or men who continued as, as normal. So I guess it's not something that we can, you know, decide for people, but it is as, a, as an employer, you do have the responsibility to to really take into account your, uh, your employees' circumstances and choices uh, and, and be as fair as you can, uh, given, given the business needs as well. Interesting. Well, I think it's a huge topic that we could speak about for, for many, many hours. And I'd love to be, uh, continue to be educated on, um, cause it's important. And, um, as we, we head towards the end of the podcast, I want to talk to you about, mission-led businesses and organizations and why this is such a big trend today. Um, as somebody who has obviously spent a significant portion of your career working in nonprofits and obviously, as we said at the beginning, transitioning into the tech world, there is this, this trend towards both co at company level having mission and purpose and social impact behind their businesses as well as employees making decisions around um, job choices based on the company mission. Um, and first of all, why do you think that has become such a big trend? Um, I've got my own views on it that I'll share after you go first. Um, yeah, so I mean, I also see that in recent years, I see the kind of demographics like the millennials, for example, that, you know, they require more than just a superficial return of, uh, of investment or, or, you know, just, uh, to work somewhere where they really align their profits with their values to, to kind of make the, the world a better place. And I actually see a lot of uh, women in different ages come to me and say, you know, I decided to work the bank, to leave the, the bank where I work or to leave uh, you know, the, the other organization where I work and do something meaningful. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's, a, it's a big question. We, we, I mean, in terms of what's driving it, it could be a lot around the kind of the, the big issues of climate change that people really understand that it's their role to do something about it. Uh, it could be uh, the way this generation is being brought up, being so empowered by technology uh, and, and, uh, and being so connected to places, you know, outside of, our, of their immediate network. I mean, in Israel, when I grew up, I'm sorry if I sound like a dinosaur, I did not have, uh, you know, the, the ability to know exactly what's happening in Africa or, or you know, places that are uh, really struggling. I did not have those tools unless I, I would listen to the news every day and then in Israel you wouldn't necessarily hear about this. So the, the, the kind of the, the awareness around that is, is very, very uh, high. And then when it comes to impact investing, which is an area that I'm very passionate about, you know, we see um, incredible entrepreneurs that are trying to solve societal 
problems but are often overlooked by traditional venture capital and limited by the amount of, of capital available for them by nonprofits and philanthropies. So I guess that's why uh, impact investing is so strong because they realize that they can be a whole new uh, way of making money and doing good. And uh, it's no wonder that this industry is now worth $700 billion uh, globally. Wow. I think I think what's interesting is probably that generational change that you mentioned. You know, the the jobs that I had early on in my career, um, I certainly did not pay any attention to the perhaps values of the company or whether there was any particular mission behind it. It was a job, um, and that has changed, as you say, because of the nature of communication and uh, you know news availability, and I think just a a, a more acute sense of people wanting to be aligned with values and purpose absolutely um it but 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 i think it maybe also aligns with i think society has changed and maybe you know perhaps people are more less, less religious than they were in previous generations i think there's more of a breakdown of family structure than that we we probably noticed more than ever before community has changed and and, and with that community is oft, often where you work and you often want to then do those things that um, empower you with those people that you spend a lot of time with so I think that might be also playing into the way that people still want belonging and community they're not finding it in maybe the places that we thought of traditionally um, but work is taking over that role and, and I think of myself I have changed in my views you know would I buy certain products today that have um, certain values around um, you know, whatever they're doing in the world, yeah, I probably would make buying decisions differently, and, and that is a change. Would I buy Ben and Jerry's today? No. Would I, would I, would I, you know, these are decisions that, that I'm making because of the value system that I have vis-a-vis -vis the company. Um, so I think it's probably only a good thing, and ultimately people only want to do good inherently, I think. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and it also goes back to what I said about being empowered and seeing that, you know, we can make make a difference because unlike, you know, in previous years when we didn't have those uh, global communication and technology, um, we were as very much uh, aligned with our workplace and, and kind of defined by it. But now we can be our own people. And, uh, you know, with one post, we can make such a difference to other people. And so this, this uh, empowerment of us as individuals really really, I think, kind of pushed us and, and almost kind of opened the appetite for us to do more uh, for, for others. Well, look, the good news is that with people like you in the world making an impact and bringing change and delivering um, um, the ability for people to become remarkable, I think we are in good hands. It has been amazing having you on the podcast. I definitely could speak to you for a lot longer, uh, but I know you've got a full day ahead of you, so we really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for being on Coffee with Curtis. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Thank you for listening to Coffee with Curtis. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly enjoyed making it. Eleanor is a fantastic guest. If you liked this and you want to hear more, then you can find us on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google, or any of the others. So thank you again for listening and stay tuned for more episodes.